Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, he teaches on the doctrine of original sin. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Original Sin. Uh, message in this series we're doing. Romans 5, we'll read verses 12 to 21 again. While you are uh, turning there, um, one of the things you'll notice up here, we've got some envelopes up there. Um, One of the things part of our uh, denomination that we're a part of, one of the things that excites me about being a part of it is what can happen when 50,000 local churches unite together corporately um, contribute what we can get done. One of the largest missionary forces on the planet. And every single December is kind of a special time um, in the Southern Baptist in that the, one of the offerings we take up is what is called the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Lottie Moon was uh, one of our famous missionaries in our history and such. And uh, 100% of what gets taken up for this goes to uh, fuel uh, missionaries on the field and such. So something that we get to take part in. So know that that is there. If you've got any more questions about it, just come ask. Romans chapter 5, um, let's start in verse 12, read through, and then we desperately need to pray for God's grace as we study. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then it's through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our merciful, um, loving, kind, just, righteous, holy God in heaven, a whole bunch of impure people come and seek your face today. Our only hope is Christ. And our only hope is that you are a merciful and kind God who forgives and is willing to cleanse. God, we don't come to you because in some way we've earned it or you ought to hear us. You ought to meet with us. God, it's precisely the opposite. We're a whole bunch of sinners gathered in a local church family, but bought and cleansed by the blood of Christ, made new and brought near to you by grace and not because we've deserved anything. And God, we come to your word um, to see your truth, to see both the glorious hope, but also the unpleasant and hard to accept truths about ourselves. and ask, oh God, that today you show us. Father, I need your help. Um, I'm about to try to preach in the very lips 
that are going to try and take your words on them. I've used even this morning um, in carelessness and unkindness. I'm a sinner and I need your grace. I deserve to be struck dead before you and not preach your word. But please have mercy. Have mercy on us, O oh God. We want to know you. We want to see your truths and we want to be changed by your truths, O oh God. So please, Father, we ask, send your spirit, accomplish your purposes, build us up, not in any kind of absurd self-confidence. Show us our depravity. Show us where we really are in relation to you and your righteousness. And after we feel terrible about it, show us the hope of the gospel. Show us the free and full grace in Christ and make us rejoice in it, God. Give us help to truly worship and we won't worship if we don't see with right eyes. So please, God, give us that grace. Meet with us, we pray. We ask all of this through the name of Christ. Amen. Some years back, I injured my shoulder with one of those nagging injuries that lasted actually for a couple of years. Along the way in my stubbornness, I tried to heal it myself through all of my infinite wisdom in the ways that I thought I could rehab myself back to health. Tried several things that made sense to me. Tried several things that brought some immediate but very temporary relief, but the root of the injury still stayed. Until I finally saw I'm not going to do this on my own, went to visit a doctor. The doctor gave me a set of rehab exercises, and then he gave me a pep talk. Here's the little pep talk. I'm going to paraphrase, make it a little better for the dramatic effect. He said, I'm going to give you some exercises which are going to be very easy and very basic, and you're going to think that this is useless. You may not understand why it works, but I'm telling you, this is going to work. You're going to be tempted not to do these because you think it's stupid. Do the exercises. Trust the process. I'm telling you, it will heal. And it did. I tried things my own way. It didn't work. Listen to an expert, even though it didn't make sense. And it worked. Now let me apply. Let me apply this to, you know, a, a number of areas that we could. For one, I'd like to apply this to personal Bible reading. That oftentimes when you wake up on a Monday morning and you read the word, you may not immediately see what the word is doing, but trust the process of God. Trust what it is doing. But let me apply it. Let me apply it specifically to the church's call to study and work hard to know doctrine. We're in a time that everybody expects the church to entertain them. We're in a time where there's so much chasing of sensationalism and we want the church to keep my attention. And it can happen even in churches which highlight the preaching and teaching of the word is central to places like this where we don't do fireworks and fog machines. It can still happen even in places like this. If the preacher isn't funny enough or witty enough, or I didn't like that sermon today, or he's not preaching on what I want to hear. Pastor, I want a sermon on angels this week. With this great emphasis that is constantly there of the church's job to entertain me, one of the things that gets thrown out the window is the hard, difficult, sometimes uncomfortable study of doctrine. It's a core commitment that we have here and we oftentimes mention that we believe we need the truths of God. We need doctrine. Now listen, the New Testament also calls us to love the truth and we do. We delight in it. But even before we love the truth, we recognize that we need it and that in ways that oftentimes we can't even understand how it's working and why it is doing what God says it will do, we believe him and we trust the process. Every time that the church trades in doctrine for the church dance for me, 
it always leads to devastation. It always leads to disaster. Over and over again through the centuries, we Christians, we are put in these positions where we have an opportunity to speak into the darkness. That there will be chaos that is happening, something happening culturally, and people don't know how to make sense of it. And it's in that moment that the church has the opportunity, believers have the opportunity to speak the wisdom of God, speak on behalf of the word of God, bring sense to complicated subjects. But if all we have been after is entertainment by the church and we have not worked hard to know not only doctrine, but deep, deep study of how we bring all the doctrines together, we will either misrepresent God or just fail to have answers. If we treat the Bible like a dictionary instead of as the curriculum itself, We lose foundations that when lost, we fail to see the world as it is. And when we fail to see reality as it is, our personal walk with God is diminished and we fail to have that witness to the world. And one of the things that I submit to you, one of the places that I submit to you that there is a foundational doctrine that if we fail to grasp, we are going to see the world wrongly and we're going to say unhelpful, wrong things in the midst of the culture's confusion is this doctrine of original sin or original pollution or inherited corruption, various ways that we can word it. But what it means That as we've been seeing, Adam's sin affected us. Well, in what ways has it affected us? In what ways are we different because of our connection to Adam? We finished up the the logical argument that we've been working through in verses 12 to 21. There was a, a line of thought that we've been working through and seeking to understand. But as we need to do a lot as we study the Bible, and maybe especially in the book of Romans, We'll finish a passage and we finish the main and central idea, but along the way, there are these sometimes subpoints or or points that were implied and spoken of quickly, but we didn't have sufficient time to study and we need to go back and look at them. We have another one this morning, the doctrine of original sin. And so what I want to do this morning is just simply take one day and just think intently on this one thing to try to see it rightly. So let me try to show it um, with three divisions, three parts. I'm gonna try to start with the beginning and, and build so that we see it and then see its ramifications. And I wanna make the appeal at the very beginning. If someone asks the question, does this really matter? Do I really need to know this? I wanna suggest to you only every 10 seconds that absolutely every relationship of your life, your marriage, how you choose to raise your kids, how you vote, your view on taxes will be affected by your belief on original sin and our connection with Christ. So here, here, will, be, here will be the three divisions in the way I kind of build this argument here. We're gonna start with the curse in the very beginning. Then we're going to go number two, original sin defined by the Bible. And then number three, how our understanding of original sin affects our worldview. So let's begin with number one, the curse. If you flip back to Genesis three, and I do invite you to go there with me for just a moment to reference the passage there. Genesis chapter three, and you find verses 14 to 19, and just kind of take a glance at there. What you have in this passage is a foundational passage of the scripture that is truth, but it's more than just another truth. It's the kind of truth that it lays the groundwork for how you see the world as you look at your neighbor next to you, as you think about the image that stares back to you in the mirror, what you, how you see the world will be influenced by what you believe about this little paragraph in verses 14 to 19. After Adam had chosen to break the commandment of God, God then speaks. If you look at verse 14, God curses Satan. 
In verse 15, God says that Satan would oppose the seed of Eve through history. In verse 16, God curses Eve. In verse 17, God curses Adam. In verses 18 and 19, God curses the earth. And in verse 19, God curses all of mankind with the curse of toil and death. You are living under the curse of the living God and that curse is just. Douglas Wilson uses the analogy of a crack house. We're all in this house. We're divided up into little sections according to nations and cultures and and we've all got our own little rooms in this house. For some, we work hard to try to make our room look nice or some try to make their whole section look really nice and then lock the door and ignore the rest of the house and sometimes try to pretend that this isn't actually a crack house. Try to make my little room look nice, but no matter how much paint you put on the walls, no matter how much fabric freshener you spray in the air, rats still run, mold runs deep, and the stench of rot still lingers. You can hang curtains on the windows, but you're still in a crack house. You were made in the image of God, but that image has been marred and defaced. Another Douglas Wilson metaphor here. It's like we were created as a glorious cathedral, but at the fall, the cathedral crumbled. You can still visit the site and you can see the outline. You can imagine in your minds how at one time it once was glorious, but the reality is it is still a crumbled and falling in cathedral. It's glory largely, not entirely, but largely erased. Now, if with what I have said thus far, certain thoughts are running through your minds of like, man, um, get up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, pastor awfully pessimistic this morning, preacher. Maybe you're thinking, oh, those Baptists always with the sin and the guilt stuff. Look, man, life ain't that bad. Hey, be an optimist. Look at the bright side. Sure, preacher, there's bad stuff, but I mean, I have a pretty good life. If that is your response, and and let's be honest, that is the general response of suburbia and small town America, then let's pause. We need to camp here for just a second to make sure we believe what God is saying. Let me suggest several things to you, several factors as to possibly why we might see the world in a way other than what the Bible does. So first of all, see this. First of all, just the principle. The living God in his living word, says this place is jacked. The living God in his living word says this is a cursed world. Man is depraved. He says man has a kind of hatred for God, defies his law. We are careless with the lives of others. Lies are on our tongues, blasphemy in our heart, and a narcissistic love for self is the blood running through our veins. In at least 100 passages of the Bible, God describes the race of men as so far gone, there is no tweaking that will fix it. There is no adjustment of just a little bit off on this side. No, no, let me adjust. Okay, now we're good. In over a hundred passages of the Bible, God explains we are so far gone, there is no adjustment that will fix the problem. There is a complete recreation that is needed. Now, in what I just said right there, you could prove me wrong. If I'm misrepresenting the Bible and actually God is just like, hey, preacher, be an optimist. If that's the reality, you can prove me wrong. I'm telling you that more than 100 passages of the Bible show that this is God's place. A lot of times when people want to argue with the Bible, they don't want to go do the work of actually then looking anything up. If you want to disagree with this, look it up and see it. But what you're going to find is place after place from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 That over and over again, God shows what we need is not just a tweak. 
the world is going to be burned and then recreated. No fixing. There needs redemption. If you're in Genesis 3 there, take a look over at chapter 6 for a second, a passage we turn to quite a few times because it is still part of foundational explanations. Genesis 6, find verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I've made them. Not only should you take note of what God says about human nature, intentions, thoughts of our heart only in a way that is below the standards and expectations that God has designed. Not only should we see that, but also look at what God said there about being sorry that he made man and ask this question, what does God think about the conditions here? Does God just need to lighten up? Does God just need to look at the bright side? God was grieved that he even formed man. In Jeremiah 17, 9, another familiar verse when we talk about sin, God says that man's heart is sick, deceptive, corrupt, and so twisted. Catch this. So corrupt, we don't even know that we're corrupt, which is a dangerous mix, right? Because there's the kind of evil where you know you're evil, and then there's a very dangerous kind of evil where you think you're good. And what God says is that actually that's the condition that we are in, that we are in an, in an ignorant corruption, a corruption that we do not realize our corruption. God says we are in this condition. This is part of the reason why Western culture has so much trouble believing in the existence of hell. Not, not understanding that we are corrupt and look around at all these wonderful people, why would God ever want to punish any of this? And so if you think of this world is as a good place and we all just need to look at the bright side, you need to understand that you're contradicting the evaluation of the living God. And so we begin here. This is God's declaration. The world is cursed and not blessed. Now, if we had more time, I would like to kind of develop the thoughts of here are maybe some of the factors as to why, if you are not seeing it this way, if you're either not yet a Christian and don't agree, or you're new to studying the Bible and this is kind of new truth to you. If you're in a place that you, you don't see it that way, this is not your take on the world. Some factors as to maybe why we don't have time for those, but some to consider are the worst evils around are deliberately hidden from you, not only from Satan, your enemy, but also from a crowd of elitists in the world who want to continually pretend that this is a Disney world. Second factor, you and I do not see the world perfectly. And number three, we're used to it. We've gone nose blind to the stench. This world is under the curse. This world is under the curse of God. And you and I, have been part of the problem. Around the world, little children are regularly sold into sex slavery. Little girls as young as eight are forced to begin performing sex acts as a regular part of this world. Around even our own community, children are regularly sexually abused and live a nightmare. Today, Today, the numbers on this are hard to track, but estimates today, 21,000 people will die of starvation, malnutrition, lack of clean water, or something as simple as Tylenol. Just kind of let that number sink in. 21,000 people today, and then another 21,000 tomorrow, and then another 21,000 on the day after that for things so simple, our pocket change would save their life. 21,000 will die. But by golly, we can set some new records for Black Friday shopping. 
By golly, we can pay athletes $430 million contracts. Do you see the point here and part of where we're going? Some of our depravity, in fact, maybe some of our worst depravity is not even so much in what we do. It's in what we fail to do. Orphans will sit in silent, cold darkness while we haggle over which cable or satellite or TV streaming station we will go with. This is a jacked world. God says it, but we sometimes have a hard time believing that it's true. God says it, but you and I, I mean, this is even the Christian experience. Whenever we read the Bible on a regular, regular kind of case, we so often drift to a place where we forget that it's jacked and we make world about play and ease and comfort. And we forget we are at war. This is a cursed world. This is a world of darkness and sin. And so from those things, let me just say four quick conclusions right there. Number one, this is a cursed world and stop pretending to call yourself an optimist by rejecting this with a glasses half full kind of look. Now listen, I'm not attacking optimism. We sometimes jokingly debate a little bit here. I am a little bit of a pessimist. My wife would say a lot of a pessimist, okay? We sometimes joke about those kinds of things. But listen, I'm not fighting optimism. I'm fighting dishonesty. By all means, be an optimist. Optimism has legitimacy. Be an optimist in your trust of the Lord. But what I'm saying is, it's not optimism to call something that God says is cursed and say that it's blessed. The glass may be half full, but there's poison in the water. This is a cursed world. Number two, the curse is just. Number three, you are at war. And number four, part of the curse is that you inherit original sin. So here's the second point that we're working to, original sin defined by the Bible. In a nutshell, here is the truth. We saw Genesis 6, 5. You inherited a sin nature from your first parents. Your and my inherent nature is not righteous. We were created for a certain standard and we consistently fail to reach that standard. And we have a nature that is inherently bent away from honoring God. Now listen, our character is not as twisted as it could be. Sometimes people think that the Bible's teaching on, on depravity and sin and original sin and all these things means that we're supposed to just all the time be dark and like never recognize beauty, never recognize commendable things in mankind and never recognize unkindness and unbelievers and acts of courage and valor and such. But, but listen, that would be failing that would be failing to see all the doctrines together, okay? That's, that's baby pool kind of stuff. If all we ever do is be like, you're worms, you're worms, you're worms. No, we were created in the image of the living God. We, we were created in a way that we have aspects that mirror the character and glory of God. We can see beauty, but the cathedral has crumbled. The cathedral has fallen in. We have a nature that is bent, leans away from God, is naturally antagonistic against the rule of God. You and I are sinners from the very core of us. Now, some more of the places in the Bible where we see this, you know, the primary place where we would start is our first passage this morning, Romans 5, that we've been studying through. If you look at verses 12 to 14 there, we see all have sinned and death came to all, and that makes things clear. But if you look down to verse 19, there's something that's maybe even clearer there. Verse 19 says, For as through the one man, Adam, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We were made sinners. We'll get to the good news as well of being made righteous in Christ, but made sinners. 
There's an important distinction that we need to make here. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Now, I know that that can sound just like haggling with words, but let that, let that statement linger for a little bit. What we mean by that is that in the same kind of way as we regularly recognize with humans that we're all born with certain tendencies, and let's, let's say some of the commendable tendencies. Some people are kind from the time they popped out of the womb. I, I, I do some, some little boys once in a while. I, I love to identify this amongst the little young men who run around the church. Every once in a while, you'll see one of them who is a natural born protector. And you just see like that dude's a sheep dog. One of these days, he's gonna be one of those that defends the widow and the orphan. That's a, that's a future police officer, a soldier. Uh, one, one of these who's gonna go be a missionary. That's your adventurer right there if he gets steered in the right direction because it's natural. There's something commendable in his nature. He, his Mom and dad couldn't teach him that at three years old. He just naturally defends in that kind of way. We have natural parts that are there that are commendable. But what the Bible also shows is that at the very core of our nature, mixed into it all, there is a sin nature. And even in the areas of ours that are commendable, The twisting vine of the sin nature chokes it out from reaching what it was meant to be. If we look at Ephesians 2 for a moment, if you'll flip there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Look and see what it says there. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you, so speaking to Christians, in which you formerly walked, According to the course of this world, that's speaking about of a deliberate way that we live for ourselves. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly, lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the mind, and were, watch this language, and were by nature children of wrath. By nature children of wrath. Friends, your and I's problem, our greatest problems are never outside of ourselves. Your greatest problem will always be the depravity of your own heart. You are not a sinner because your environment taught you to sin. You were not born neutral and then bad parents led you to have the sin that you have. No, no, you were born with that sin. Now listen, environment does affect us. If you are raised by wonderful, godly parents who work really hard to teach you self-control, you can become the most well-behaved sinner to ever live on the planet. But the most well-behaved sinner to ever live on the planet still deserves an eternity of hell, still acts on that core evil and needs Christ needs forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man who had ever lived up until that point. John the Baptist, the most well-behaved sinner of history, needed justification, needed salvation in Christ. The very fact that we need self-control Friends, that's evidence of what we are inside. Does it make sense? See, we're so tempted to interpret things from this way that elevates man rather than according to the eyes of God. The very fact that we need to develop self-control shows I've got lust that are trying to break out. Behavior, self-control is fighting them so as not to do it. I bite my tongue because my tongue wants to say something. We need self-control because of lust that live inside. We need police officers to keep evil in check. In the kingdom of God, we won't need self-control or police officers because righteousness will be our nature. The desires we have that will be bursting to want to overflow will never be lust. They will be honorable things that please God. We are sinful from conception. Psalm 51, 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. That's not talking about David who wrote that psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not talking about somehow that his mother was in sin at his conception. It's talking the whole psalm is David reflecting on his own sinfulness and acknowledging his need of saving grace from conception. The sin nature has been inside of us. Listen very carefully. This is a common religious misunderstanding. Babies are not born neutral, righteous, or even innocent. We are sinners from the beginning. Now, what does that mean then about, sadly, as we talk about babies who pass from this earth, that doesn't at all mean uh, that we don't believe God's grace is on them. But I believe several passages of the Bible imply, there's never a passage that just tells us exactly how it all works, but I believe numerous passages imply that babies are brought into the kingdom of heaven, but we need to understand not because they deserve it, not because they are inherently righteous, they need the blood of Christ and the mercy of God on them as well. We are in a condition that from Adam, We are sinners. If you're in Ephesians, you may flip to chapter five for just a moment. Chapter five, and if you find verse 14, read a few verses there. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. What what does it mean there? The days are evil. What it's talking about is the trajectory of life. We are on a natural trajectory of the world, of our life, of our decisions, a trajectory that dishonors God. That's our sin nature. So now here's the third point. How our understanding of original sin affects our worldview. A great deal of the Bible's teaching is not commands to go do this, but rather a lot of the Bible is simply God saying this, here's reality. And you really need to know that reality is like this. Two plus two equals four. Oranges are orange. And humans with XY chromosomes are men. That's not just a belief. That's reality. God is holy. Is not just a Christian belief. He is holy. That's reality. When the Bible explains that, the Bible is not just saying, well, you know, there's lots of ideas out here. Here's our little contribution to society. No, he is holy. The Bible is God explaining the world as it actually is. And from our sin nature, we are inherently distorted in the way that we see the world. We are distorted and God clears things up and shows us the truth. Man is sinful by nature. And that is not just a Christian belief. He is. Part of what we Christians need to say to the world is, awake sleeper, open your eyes and look around to the reality. Man is sinful. That's not just a Christian take on the situation. When we say things like this, we're just simply saying, guys, open your eyes. The sky is blue. That human with female body parts is not a man. If you've been tracking some of the news and pop culture and such lately, there was a recent push in this weird ring of feminism talking about that men can come in all shapes and sizes, including those with female body parts. Part of what we declare as Christians is the world as it is. We're on winning ground here. The world is like this. That human with XX chromosomes is female and that human with XY chromosomes is male. We're simply declaring what is. And as the Bible teaches us what is, what reality is actually like, listen, friends, when we see the world as it really is, we will worship him greatly. We will obey him because he is glorious. He is worthy. All who lay eyes on the living God, delight in him, serve him, and are drawn to fear and have trembling before him. As we in scripture come to see God as he really is and the world as it really is, this is part of how we honor him. It's part of how we live unto him and how we see the world, 
how we see God, how we see one another, and how I understand myself will affect every single millisecond of your life. Every decision you make is based on what you believe about those things right there. Consider marriage. Consider marriage. I submit to you that your view of God will determine the quality of your marriage. Your understanding of reality, your view of God, of yourself, and of your spouse, and of the covenant of marriage will affect the quality of your, your marriage. In Ephesians 5, one of the things that God is doing is simply explaining this is what marriage is. This is how the world is. Yes, there are some commands in Ephesians 5, that passage about marriage, but part of what he's just doing is saying, this is reality. Now live accordingly. How many times have you seen marriages in misery because both the husband and wife think it's the other person's fault? If my husband would just, then we would have a great marriage. A husband might say, I am a nice guy around everybody else in the world except that woman. She's the problem. Both of them fail to comprehend original sin. Seeing, com seeing original sin, understanding original sin will lead to sus suspecting myself first. That when there is conflict, the person who deeply understands their own depravity will not immediately do the blame game of it must be her fault, but to look inwardly and suspect self as first. Listen, believers who deeply understand the gospel will be the greatest spouses on the planet. Being a believer is not going to automatically make you a great spouse. Far from it. Now, it should give you a good kick in the pants that direction. But the more we come to understand the truths of God, the more we come to understand him, how he has made marriage, when the more we come to understand our own depravity, we'll bring a deep humility. And man, let's take a husband. A husband who is deeply humble. When disagreement arises, he suspects himself first. When he knows deeply the gospel of free grace, he is eager to seek reconciliation, quick to offer apology, quick to forgive when he is wronged, under submission to God, and he views himself as a servant and not as an entitled prima donna, he lets offenses roll off of him because he thinks, who am I? I'm nothing before the living God. I'm grateful I get to have a wife. How you see yourself, how you understand your heart will determine the quality of your marriage. We apply this to the raising of children. This is actually a really big one. You will raise your children based on what you believe. You will raise your children based on whether you believe the mottos of the pop psychologist or whether you believe the doctrine of the Bible. A loss of understanding here. Now listen, faithful churches, healthy churches have been honoring God all the way through, but we have seen in our culture a great leaving of doctrine. And there's the whole debate over which of them are true churches and true regenerate believers and things like that. We understand but there was a time when the church led the nation, led the culture in the wise raising of children. That's gone. Whereas most now have begun to believe the, the mottos of pop psychology rather than the Bible, but you will raise them based on what you believe. Do you believe that your children are original sinners, potential monsters, and narcissistic self-lovers who need to be taught self-control. If that's the case, that will open the door to the whole book of Proverbs and explaining why we are instructed to do what we are commanded to do, why discipline and correction is necessary. Discipline and correction is necessary because you have potential monsters on your hands. Just as we are potential monsters apart from the discipline and correction of God. Or consider just even when we look at culture, and we see the absolute obsession with victimhood right now. It's all the rage to make sure everybody understands. I have no privilege. I'm part of the marginalized intersectionality of humanity. 
We see this directions. We are seeing what happens when original sin is abandoned. If you get original sin wrong, you will spend your life blaming others. Victim identity flows out of a rejection of individual responsibility. And even when it doesn't go that far, like that's crazy and we can see some of the insanity of that. But what happens when it runs in marriage? Victim identity is one of the great destroyers of marriage. She's not treating me how I deserve. We see it go back even to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve both blamed others for their sin. We can see this over and over again. This has historically been um, a a doctrine that's been brought up. Uh, Christians, for instance, have been some of the world's leaders in proposing various forms of democracy because of our beliefs about original sin. If you believe original sin, you want power spread out thinly. This is one of the reasons why America was established as a democratic republic. It's because the framers of the Constitution, now listen, it's ridiculous when people say they were all Christians, not at all, but there were some common beliefs that we can trace and see common to the Bible, a number of beliefs from the Bible, and one of them being original sin. If you're interested in that, sometime take a look at some of C.S. Lewis's arguments he made in history on this subject. You will not understand yourself. We will not comprehend reality if we do not see our nature. And listen, friends, original sin manifests itself differently in every one of us. We are bent, but we are all bent in different directions. We are all born with particular tendencies, some with anger, some with an an incredible thirst for the approval of others, some with tendencies towards aggressiveness, some with great sexual desire, some lying has come natural from the very beginning. We are all narcissistic from birth, but we will all go different directions with that narcissism. For some, Our narcissism leads us down a path of self-pity and always worrying about how I'm not getting what I ought to get. For others, that narcissism goes the direction of cocky and arrogant desire to take over the world. But on and on we go. And friends, we need to understand these natural tendencies is that this is how original sin has affected you and I personally. You need to know how Adam has affected all of mankind. But you also need to know how Adam has affected you individually. Know thyself. You knowing your tendencies is going to be critical in your plan for your sanctification, Christian. For you, Christian, if you don't know what I mean by that word sanctification, after justification, that moment of being made right with God, sanctification is the lifelong process of growing in holiness. And if you don't know what I mean by your plan for your sanctification, please learn very quickly or you're going to be in trouble. Your sanctification, which is God's will for your life right now, is not going to come naturally. Oh, God's going to make sure he does some things in your life Oh yeah, he will. But we won't grow to those places that God expects us to and will be for our joy and our reward without sweat, blood, and tears in fighting and clawing in our sanctification. And a key to understanding our own individual sanctification is knowing what are my tendencies. What are the ways that Adam has affected me personally? So for each of you to think on your own, what is your natural trajectory? If you were to just walk what is easiest, where would that road lead you? Man, part of my sanctification, and I'm sure humbling as a pastor is, God shows me occasionally my tendencies and trajectories, and they are ugly. And when we see them, then we know what needs to be fought. Original sin affects everyone differently. For some, it's sexually. This is one of the places where we need to get this right. 
This is one of the places where we have an opportunity to speak into the culture and show the wisdom of God and bring sense to things. With the recent rise of same-sex relationships and the whole debacle of transgenderism, this has led to a lot of folks in society, even unbelievers, trying and struggling to make sense of the world. But you've got, you've, cause you've got conflicting beliefs that are all going on. But we gotta make sure we get this right. So we hear many in the world who have same-sex desires. And they say things like, I was born this way. I have felt these desires from as early as I can remember. What is one of our temptations, the ways we're tempted to answer at that point? And what is one of the ways that many self-righteous and legalistic Christians have screamed at them at that point? It's been to say things like, you weren't born like that. It's just a choice. Saying that betrays doctrine. What we need to be explaining is, Original sin has affected all of us differently and we all go different directions. Your sin is not my sin. I'm tempted over here, but you're tempted in this, but you need to understand that it is still sin and we need the grace of Christ. We were all born with original sin going different directions. The world preaches, well, you know, for one, walk up and down the hallways of a public school and read the posters. Read the posters and you'll see the mottos of the world. Be yourself. Love yourself. I love me. I'm awesome. I'm a superman. I'm beautiful. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Be yourself. Be yourself. Be yourself. And listen, there is a legitimate use of the phrase, be yourself. Don't get me wrong. There is a time as parents, we may tell our children when they're starting to act like somebody else, be yourself, but not the way that the world is using it. The world is using the motto, be yourself, as a way of latch on to your sexual desires and make it your identity. Listen, Satan is using the phrase, be yourself, to undo God's motto for us. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. There is a way in which the Bible says, be yourself. There is also a way the Bible says very clearly, do not be your most natural self. Be holy. For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. But someone could ask, but pastor, I thought Psalm 139 teaches that I am fearfully and wonderfully made and that God formed my inward parts. Ooh. See, it starts to get difficult sometimes, doesn't it? Because we very much acknowledge that God created us in this way. And so the answer is yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, but the same book of Psalms, which tells you that in another place, tells us, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. We got to see the danger of only taking the happy parts of the Bible. Got to see the danger of we only have sermons on Psalm 139. Oh yeah, we get a lot of amens on that Sunday. Sermon on original sin doesn't get as many, but we need to understand them and we need to see how they fit together. So how we should respond to the world is, yes, God made you and your body and your soul is a wonderful display of the glory of God. But the same Bible that God tells you that also says that there is inherent corruption and pollution from the original nature that is there. There are many who are um, sinning sexually, but claiming Christianity and will often claim Psalm 139 as their as they're backing for why they believe they can be a Christian and do this. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. This is how God made me. And if God made me like this, then it must be beautiful. This is why we need Romans 5. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, but you are also attached to Adam. And in Adam, there is the sin nature. There is inherited pollution. And in Adam, all die. By the way, the Bible is the only place in the world that adequately explains the complexity of these kinds of things in a way that when you read it, you're just like, I see it. I see the answers that are there. And for you, Christian, you are a sinner. And that was a core part 
of your identity. And just as we've had a sermon on original sin, we are also going to have another sermon, a little happier sermon, from Romans 6, whenever we enter there, about a different kind of change of nature. For you, Christian, you who have turned to Christ to be justified, you who have heard the message that you must be saved and you've believed and you have turned to Christ and you're confident that you're right with him, something has now changed that alters everything. At conversion, the new birth has brought a change to our nature. Your nature has been radically altered. The Bible says you've been given a new heart with new desires. The Bible says that our sin nature, it's not been completely removed, but it has been radically altered. God has brought a change all the way to the core of us. And then the Bible calls us, go be in practice what God has made you in your identity. Go live in practice what God has remade you to be in Christ. God has brought about, we'll, we'll look at one passage with you. The last one we're gonna look at, Romans 7, for just a moment. Look at, look at the great change that we see here. And then we're almost done. Romans 7, look at verse 5. Look at the explanation of before conversion and after conversion that we see here. Romans 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Do you see God explaining there? There is a radical change to desires. There is a radical change to passions. There is a radical change to identity. There is a radical change to the fundamental core of who we are. The Bible actually says that when we were under the law in the covenant of works, being in that condition actually aroused more desire to rebel, like telling a kid, don't touch that button. And everything in the world now is I want to touch that button. That's us under the law. But now under Christ, a fundamental change has occurred down to the very nature. It is not to perfection or even the possibility of it, but it is a rebuilding of the cathedral, an absolutely critical part of living the Christian life is understanding who we are and what our nature is. You need to know who you are in Adam, but just as important, you need to know who you are in Christ. It's an absolutely genius truth of the Bible. You will live according to who you believe you are. You will live according to how you see yourself as your identity. When we come to understand who we are in Christ, sons and daughters of the living God, a great transformation begins to unfold. God changes the nature, changes the identity, begins to help in changing the desires. We need to understand Adam and understand Christ and live accordingly. And then just a brief word to you. If you have not yet believed this whole thing, if you've not yet believed this message that you must be saved, I can only assume that if you reject this take on the world, that you've got your own view, you've got your own take of what you believe of how the world is. And what I ask you is, does your belief match reality? And are you willing to examine it? The Bible says that sin separates you from God. If you really are as good as you think you are, as good as you claim you are, why is the world in the condition that it is? The Bible says you must be saved. Look to Christ. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your rebellion against God and believe him. Trust in Christ. Call on him and you will be saved. As always, if you have questions about that, want to pray with somebody, find me before you walk out those doors and let me explain more about that. But let's close in prayer.
Our Father in heaven, um, please take these truths and bring them to show us who you are, who we are, to see the world rightly. Father, I, I pray for us believers that we will live in light of the identity that you have established us in Christ. And Lord, I pray for any in the room that are unconverted, who are at this moment resisting you. Please, God, bring them to believe. Bring them then to turn to you and trust in Christ. Bless us as we walk out these doors, oh God. Help us to live as obedient people following Christ. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things through Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, Original Sin. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Music